Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City employment and civil rights law firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. My name is Meyer Nassar, and I am joined by Casey Wanowski and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Today's episode is about Islamophobia and your rights within the workplace. And today we have a special guest to talk about these issues. We are joined by Ahmed Mohammed, the litigation director of the civil rights organization CARE New York. The Council on American Islamic Relations Chapter New York is one of the most instrumental organizations for the Muslim community advocating for their civil rights. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's get right down to it. Tell us about CARE and the mission that it has for the Muslim community. First, thank you so much for having me on. I uh, really appreciate this opportunity to come speak about CARE New York's work with you and, of course, to talk about how we're combating Islamophobia everywhere and in the workplace. CARE New York, as you said, stands for the Council on American Islamic Relations New York chapter. We combat Islamophobia, we educate our community, we we make sure that they're civically engaged uh, and that we're protecting their civil rights and their civil liberties in all forms of life. And we're making sure that we're creating an environment here in New York State where they can be active and they can live their lives as they see fit and be proud to be Muslims out in the open. Yeah, it's wonderful. And in terms of the work that CARE has been doing over the last many years, specifically in your area as a litigation director, what type of things have you been working on and what type of things have you been seeing overall in the Muslim community? That's a great question. You know, from year to year, we see a lot of change in what our community is asking of us. Ever since Trump got elected, we have been busy responding to hate crimes. We do a great deal of advocacy work for hate crime victims. We work to advocate for those individuals. We make sure that we're pushing back against surveillance practices from the NYPD, from the FBI. We don't want a repeat or to have to fight another form of mapping Muslims around the city as we saw from the NYPD for over a decade. Workplace discrimination is always the forefront of public accommodations, discrimination as well. And really, you know, discrimination, regardless of where it happens, is extremely important for us. Whenever we consider taking on a case, a key question for us is to make sure that the case itself is important to the Muslim community here in New York State, and that we're, we're trying to achieve some sort of policy objective. And generally speaking, that is to protect the rights of Muslim New Yorkers so that they can practice their faith as they see fit on their daily lives. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so in terms of workplace issues that are commonly faced by the Muslim community here in New York, obviously, we're dealing with a pretty impactful pandemic. And certainly a lot of people are reeling from the economic woes of this particular time. But kind of going more specific into the Muslim community and how what type of experiences Muslim people have within the workplace? What type of issues have you seen frequently come in front of you with respect to the community at large within the workplace? 
Generally speaking, for us, there are three types of issues that, that we see. One is individuals who are reaching out to our office who are seeking religious accommodations. In a lot of instances, they are worried that if they ask for a religious accommodation, that their job might be a risk, right? And so in those instances, we're really educating the community member and we are talking them through the process on what the law actually is in New York City, if, if we're in the city or in New York State, if we're outside of the city of New York. And the reason for that is the city of New York has um, rules and regulations that are much more beneficial than the state or the federal government. And so we're talking our community members through the process, how they go about requesting the accommodation, what should they expect, right? There has to be a bona fide conversation between them and the employer. And the one thing that we always tell our community members is they have to be flexible when it comes to seeking an accommodation, right? Yes, we're not saying be flexible in what your religious practices or what your principles are, but how the employer accommodates you is something that is not a one-size-fits-all approach. As you all know very well, the employer has to remove the dispute between your religious practice and the employee's policy. He doesn't have to give you the accommodation that you actually want. That's an educational component that we deal with a great deal. And we're talking about accommodations. Generally, there are accommodations to pray. There are accommodations for religious holidays. And there are accommodations to wear religious attire for the most part. And sometimes there are accommodations to maintain a certain look. We're talking about your pants being a certain way from the uniform dress code to wearing a hijab that may have to meet some sort of color code to fit within the uniform or the length of a beard, right? And whether there's a mask involved, especially with the pandemic, and we're always you know, trying to evaluate whether there's an undue burden for the employer and what route to best take. The second type of case that we see a lot of is harassment in general, right? It's whether the employer has provided the accommodation or not, the employee is facing harassment, right? And we always say it's not good enough to say you can wear the hijab, but when you wear the hijab, we're going to bully you in the workplace. We're going to single you out. We're going to make extremely offensive comments. We have had cases where, where individuals have been called terrorists or they've been asked questions about Osama bin Laden or other really extremely offensive stuff. We can get into some particulars later on. And then, of course, the third type is the actual discrimination itself is when the employer denies your accommodation or retaliates against you for either requesting the accommodation or for challenging the employer's actions. Yeah. And that sounds like there's a whole process that goes back and forth between the employee and the employer and figuring out how to make this work for everyone. Certainly different when you're dealing with scenarios in which there's harassment and discrimination that is motivated by one's religious faith, especially Islam. So, I mean, in terms of what you've seen, and certainly you kind of touched upon it, the different types of harassment and discrimination that people from the Muslim community face within the workplace, what kind of things have you seen at CARE? I guess, tell us a little bit about the war stories without revealing any kind of confidential information. Well, like a lot of our cases are released to the public. But the ones that aren't, but we'll keep confidentiality. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a couple. Some of the most egregious stuff over the last year. I, I remember around October of last year, we filed this case against 
International Design Services Incorporated. They hired Sudanese Muslim American, oh, he wasn't American, he was a green card holder. And right off the bat, he was mistreated by a supervisor. There were statements made telling this individual, like on a weekly basis, the supervisor would basically test the employee to see how well he knew engineering, right? Or how well he knew the work that he was doing. And he would tell the, the employee while yelling at him, making physical and verbal gestures and threats, very demeaning comments like, if you get the answer to this question wrong, I'll run you over with the car. Telling the employee that you belong. Oh my God. Yes. Telling the employee you belong to me, making the gun hand gesture, placing his finger on the, on the employee's forehead. Oh my God telling him, I'm going to shoot you if you get this question wrong. Or I think at one point, the supervisor even asked him, did you guys, referring to Africans, eat monkey brains? Oh, man. He, he was, yeah, it, it, was, it was very bad. I think on at least 10 separate occasions, the supervisor had asked this individual, or had actually told the individual, I don't like your religion. Oh, and man. he tried to get the, the individual to stop praying to stop fasting during the month of Ramadan, pressured him into drinking alcohol. And of course, he reported this to HR and got fired. And what do you tell people who are being subjected to something like that? How do you advise them? What do you tell them they should do? Right. To yeah. Well, you know, in this case, the individual didn't reach out to our office until several months after he mm -hmm. had gotten fired. Mm -hmm. But had he gotten in touch with us during this process, Obviously, you know, after each incident, we definitely advise all community members who were going through harassment and discrimination to report it to their HR. One of the best things that you can do for yourself long term is to document these types of situations. Report it, gain that protection under Title VII, under the state human rights law, or city human rights law that, that protects your activity. When you're reporting discrimination, document it, whether you're documenting it on yourself separately or documenting it to HR, and then making sure that you're holding the employer accountable to go through the process. Because one of the best defenses that an employer can have, especially on a federal level, is to say, I didn't know about this, right? You, you didn't tell me. And we can't fix a problem that, that we don't know. Because at the end of the day, we all know all employers have manuals and policies that prohibit discrimination. But right. having the policy doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean very much, at least, if you're not actually applying it. Right. Yeah. So reach out to a lawyer mm -hmm. right, during this process who will help you. Uh, I'll give you an example on how we stem some of these issues when someone contacts us at the very beginning, right? Uh, where we do sue quite a bit of employers and, and government agents, I'll be honest on that front, right? Mm -hmm. But we're not necessarily looking to sue everybody and anybody that we can and every single component, right? We're a civil rights organization. Our point is to change policy more than anything. And so if someone comes up to, to our office and says, hey, I'm having this issue, will you help me? Generally speaking, if there are employers listening to this, you, you may have experienced this. Generally speaking, we will send out a fairly nice letter, right? In essence, reminding the employer what their legal obligations are. Right. It will mm -hmm. outline some of the factual issues. And in some instances, if we believe there's been discrimination or there are violations of the law, we will let the employer know and it will give them an opportunity to say, okay, all right, we need to resolve this before this gets bigger than what it needs to be. 
Generally speaking, most employers resolve the issue that way fairly quickly. I can tell you a couple of years ago, we actually had an Amazon case that went about that way. Mm -hmm. We were able to resolve the situation with Amazon without having to bring in either an employment agency or to see some sort of lawsuit. And it was resolved pretty pretty amicably, pretty fairly to the satisfaction of the employee. Um, and you know, there wasn't retaliation afterwards either. So great. Good. And then with respect to the accommodations, what are some of the valid reasons that an employer has whereby the employer can legally deny the accommodation? Because I know you had mentioned something about an undue burden or right. maybe you can elaborate a little bit. Right. So the employer can generally deny an accommodation if it's going to have an undue burden on their business operations. That means separate things depending on what jurisdiction you're in. In New York City, that's pretty hard. It's got to be very well documented by the employer and a minimal burden, whether that's having to shift employees around or even expend minimal amounts of money to make the accommodation in the city of New York is not an undue burden. On the federal level, the standard for what an undue burden is, is pretty low on the employer. It's really unfortunate. I think the courts have really done a disservice to Title VII when they set the burden so, so low on on how employers can can meet an undue burden. But the one thing I, I tell all of our community members, all of our clients, is that we generally do not tolerate hypothetical burdens from the employer. If an employer truly has an undue burden, we certainly understand that, right? We, no one is asking for you to shut down your business for three hours on a Friday so that one employee can go pray Jum'ah, right? Friday prayers. Mm-hmm. That, you don't do that for your Catholics who go to mass if you are open on Sunday. You don't do that for your Jewish workers on Saturday. We don't expect you to do that for your Muslim workers. That's an undue burden. That's a very clear undue burden. Yes. But, but it's got to be documented. It's got to be something that's going to have a real impact on your business operations. You know, unfortunately, the law has not developed in that area to a way where it's, you know, like a mathematical formula, right? right. Very fact-intensive. We try to consider all the factors in the workplace. And, and I'll say this, sometimes it's very difficult to evaluate an undue burden because from a plaintiff, from an employee perspective, from a, the attorney's viewpoint, the attorney may not know of all the, the back-end things that go into the particular employer's business. You know, when I was at Care National, we litigated a huge lawsuit on behalf of over, I believe, 130 to 150 Somali-American employees who worked at uh, Cargill, which is a meat distribution and packaging business. And we had to learn how a meat distributor goes about and does their business and how they, you know, have created kind of like an assembly line and what the impact was of removing one employee from that line would have on the business, right? Mm -hmm. And so you just have to learn the employer's business sometimes in order to make that evaluation. You know, the one thing we do look for that I'll say, and I'm sure you guys do as well, is when we're thinking about an undue burden, especially in a... There are analogous issues in the workplace that were really cut back against the employer's defense of an undue burden. And generally speaking, we get employers who say, look, I can't spare five to 10 minutes for my employee to go pray. Or if he's going to go pray, he's got to clock in and clock out. 
I got to use a stopwatch. If he goes beyond seven minutes, he's getting penalized. And then the very next question we'll ask the employer, sometimes it's, you know, in a deposition, be like, do you allow smoke breaks? They're like, yeah. Do, you, do people have to leave? They're like, no. People just go on smoke breaks whenever they feel the urge. They got to go smoke. Like, so how long does it take for us? Like, you know, some people leave for 10 minutes here or there. Oh, okay. You know, like. So that's okay. Just not. That's okay. Right. But the, the faith practice is a, a huge drain on the business operations, right? So sometimes there's a lot of pretexts, right? And mm-hmm. what the employer will or will not allow. I wanted to ask a question, just kind of general curiosity. Since the 2016 presidential election, has your organization seen an uptick in any particular type of claim that people wish to bring? So in other words, since the 2016 presidential election, have you seen people come to your organization in a higher frequency that want to bring, say, hostile work environment claims, failure to hire, failure to accommodate? Always just curious to see how real life things such as a presidential election and a controversial candidate who won, how they have an impact on the types of claims that you see now that we've had kind of a a large sample size of of three and a half years? Yeah, Casey, great question. Let me just say this. In 2016, the New York chapter registered almost a 500% increase in hate and bias incidents in general. And that was during the election of Donald J. Trump. Mm-hmm. I've been here for about 19 months. And the one thing that I've constantly seen is there's a trend for a hostile workplace uh, that I would say is a bit, it didn't shock me, but it's a little surprising that there are more hostile workplace claims than there would be a regular, what I would call a straight up failure to accommodate. Failure to hire. Yeah, or failure to oh. hire which we haven't seen very many of in the state of New York. When I was in DC, you know, we had national jurisdiction. So we went to a lot of less progressive states, right? Like Virginia or Maryland or Kansas, where we had to litigate a lot of, you know, failure to hire claims. I remember a claim in Virginia where the individual hired this woman and then the owner actually told her that you can start on Monday, just make sure to leave that at home. And when I say that, he was pointing at at the hijab she was wearing. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, that ended up into a federal lawsuit as well. Or we had a a McDonald's franchise that I think was owned by a Muslim. (laughs) So Muslims can certainly discriminate against one another. I want to make that clear because that was the defense of the McDonald's franchise owner was that he was Muslim and that his wife wears hijab. But that did not change the fact that he told his employee that she got the job, but that not she wasn't wear. allowed to wear the, you know, she, she was like, you can just start the job, but we have a policy that you can't wear that. And so it certainly happens. But for the most part in the state of New York, I think everyone knows very clear that the hijab is not something that creates an undue burden. It's very well understood and has been litigated pretty clearly in federal courts. We don't see that very often. What we see is more of harassment in creating a workplace environment, hostile workplace, or it's a failure to accommodate prayer mm-hmm. because that tends to get into the undue burden a bit more complex. And the hostility sometimes is very, very clear cut. I know earlier this year in the middle of COVID, we filed a, a case against CUNY, 
and the student was working in the career services and and she endured about a year's worth of just bullying and demonization from two of her supervisors and it ranged from religious discrimination to sexual harassment and it it was extremely bad i mean just to give you an example my goodness her the executive university registrar supervisor asked her if Osama bin Laden was related to Barack Obama, right? Like we're talking 2019 as well, by the way, right? Right. He, yeah, pretty stale joke, but yeah, yes, offensive yeah. nevertheless. Right, very offensive. And it was a part of a year-long campaign. You know, she was Indian American. He asked her if she was Jewish because, because she had a long Jewish nose is what, what he said. There was a lot of body shaming. I think at one point, one of the supervisors offered her a donut which sounds pretty nice, accompanied with Take That Somali. Oh my God. And he explained that he called her Somali because she's skinny and doesn't eat and is hungry like a Somali. I, I, right, as if that was, I guess, less offensive than, than the, I guess, what she perceived to be the reason why he called yeah, her that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was insane. And he called another student that was seeking assistance from the registrar's office. He had a Muslim slash Arab name. He called him another terrorist, right? And she's like, what? Why would you say that? And then, of course, she looked at the name and made the connection. You know, one of the supervisors, to make things all worse, this really was, I think if this was in the middle of the, the hype of the, the climax of the Me Too era, this would have gotten a lot of coverage. The female supervisor actually told her that she needed to learn how to take abuse. And... I think the saddest part for our client in a situation like that, where she reported it to CUNY, they investigated and they found nothing wrong. They gave the supervisors a clean bill of health and they said, we didn't find any wrongdoing whatsoever. And it was just very upsetting, especially coming from university dedicated to public interest. You know, I, I think to me, you know, that's kind of like a textbook example of what harassment and hostility looks like in a workplace. Absolutely. And I think it's because people are empowered and believe that, well, because we're not taking any sort of adverse action against this person, what's the big deal if we tell some offensive jokes or if we call you some names? You still have a job, you're still earning a living, what's the big deal? And they don't take into account the emotional impact that that has on someone. No, it, absolutely. This, this young woman definitely felt targeted and she didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. She obviously didn't feel respected. She didn't feel safe. She felt like the environment was not a place she wanted to be. It was really having a, a great toll on her emotionally. Yeah. It, you know, the saddest part is not only was there a lot of anti-Muslim animus, there was a lot of anti-Semitic animus as well. And in fact, after our client left that workplace, this the same female supervisor interviewed Jewish female applicant to replace our client. And this Jewish job applicant actually did not shake hands with individuals of the opposite sex, which some, some Muslims also practice that faith practice as well. And right after that interview, this female supervisor actually told the other staff members that the job applicant might be contagious with measles and that she started to sh you know itch her hand because as a female, she had shaped the job applicant's hand. And then she began to start Google searching like measles after the interview, right? We're talking about like, mm -hmm. you know, some, some like next level bigotry going on here. 
Yeah. Right. So you had mentioned something about members of different sects within Islam. And I just wanted to kind of gauge whether or not you've seen a lot of discrimination or underlying harassment related to people within the faith itself against people from different sects. We have not received, I, I don't know, off of the top of my head, I, I don't recall uh, any complaints workplace-wise that we've received against one sect versus the other sect within the Muslim community. If those are happening, they're not coming to our office, mm-hmm. but we haven't seen that. Now, we have seen complaints within our community against one another, but in those complaints, they're not religiously motivated. For example, I think recently we got a complaint about one Muslim versus another Muslim alleging that his employer didn't pay him his wages. Mm-hmm. That's not workplace discrimination. That is a violation of the law. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yes. Yeah. It is just not something that directly falls within our scope of work. So when we get those types of cases, we seek to refer them out to our law partners or to the right, either you know, city or state agency or nonprofit organization that does that work. So just a couple of months back, we went through the holy month of Ramadan, and one aspect of practicing the Islamic faith is fasting during that month, and we touched upon religious accommodations. What type of workplace issues have you seen for people that are fasting during the month, and what would you advise them in terms of what they need to do to make sure their employers treat them right? So covid really threw a wrench in everyone's planning. A lot of folks that we would normally be assisting because of Ramadan pretty much were out of work or were stay at home. But the general advice that I would tell individuals is that number one, don't assume that your employer knows that much about your faith. Okay. Obviously, if you're creating a really good relationship between yourself and your supervisors and your employer, they they may know more than the average New Yorker. And so that means there's got to be some form of education, especially when it's a long-term change, like the month of Ramadan, which is 30 whole days, and you may be asking for a significant accommodation. You want to educate the employer and you want to give the employer advance notice on the changes in the accommodations that you're seeking. That's number one. Now at Care New York, what we try to do is early on before Ramadan comes, we try to release guides for employers. We try to prepare template letters explaining what the month of Ramadan is, what type of accommodations they should be making for their employees. And number one, we want employers to be proactive. Ideally, and the city government does this for the most, and a lot of agencies, ideally, we want the employer to say, look, we have Muslim employees, the month of Ramadan is coming, and this is the accommodation that we're providing. We want them to provide the accommodation before the employee finds out, oh my gosh, I had this huge conflict. I think that's the best way to go about it is if the employer is you know, proactive, but in some situations that's not possible either. We haven't been able to reach out to that employer or the employer may be too small to realize that they need to make an accommodation. And so you want to make sure that you're asking for the accommodation well in advance and that you're working with the employer in a situation like that. The one thing we tell individuals to be careful about is your employer is a human being as well. And there has to be on both sides of the table, it needs to really be cooperative, collaborative, 
to work with one another to try to reach like really good accommodation that works for everybody. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ahmed Mohammed. I really appreciate your time today. I think we covered a number of topics today and certainly want to thank you and your amazing organization for all the work that it's doing on behalf of the Muslim community. Thank you. And I, I appreciate all of you. I know, Maher, you and I, you've done a few consultations for us. Thank you so much. I hope to you know, be working with all three of you on some cases moving forward. Who knows, maybe maybe some of the cases we talked about today will get some either probable cause findings or, or take a different route if need to. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sounds Jeff and Casey. I thank, thank everyone you. for listening to this podcast today. Join us next time for our next topic that we will cover. Looking forward to giving you more guidance on your workplace rights. Take care and stay safe. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.